0: You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today, we're bringing you an episode from Law & Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement.
1: On February 28, 1993, the ATF attempted to serve a warrant at a compound outside of Waco, Texas that was home to a religious group known as the Branch Davidians. The warrant gave the ATF the authority to seize illegal weapons that were being stockpiled at the compound and arrest the group's leader, David Koresh, and a few of his followers who had been named as major co-conspirators in the weapons charges against Koresh. The raid, however, would not go as planned. Four federal agents would die in a shootout with the compound's inhabitants, who suffered their own casualties as well and it would ultimately lead to a 51-day standoff between Branch Davidians and federal agents before a fiery and tragic conclusion. The compound erupted in flames, killing all of the Branch Davidians that remained inside. Thirty years later, the tragedy at Waco serves as a chilling moment in our country's history. It served as a turning point for the ATF and ultimately led to increased training initiatives and improved crisis intervention response. Today, in our second episode of coverage of the 30th anniversary of the raid on Waco, we're going back to that first day at Mount Carmel, February 28th, 1993. And you're going to hear from Blake Boatler, who was one of the special agents on the ground with the ATF Special Response Team, a tactical unit within the ATF that would serve the warrants in specific cases. We sat down with Boatler back in 2017 for a joint oral history interview for the museum and the ATF and in this interview, he does a great job of describing what it was like to be at Waco on that day. At the time of the Waco raid, Boatler was assigned to the Dallas Field Office, one of three ATF divisions that were handling the Branch Davidian investigation. Boatler grew up in Texas and actually worked as a petroleum geologist before a personal encounter as a victim of violent crime led him to pursue a career in law enforcement. Boatler began his career with the ATF in the mid-1980s, and his tenure with the ATF goes far beyond Waco and the special response team. Boatler's legacy with the ATF really lies in his undercover work, especially in the Colorado Springs area, where he helped to take down the Sons of Silence motorcycle gang in the area. We won't get into Boatler's undercover work today. Maybe we'll go into it in a future episode. But today, we're going to introduce you to Boatler. Let you hear a little bit about his background and what led him to pursue a career with the ATF. And then you'll hear about his firsthand experience as a member of the special response team on the ground at Mount Carmel. Boatler's testimony will conclude with his descriptions of the lessons learned from that initial response at Waco and how he noticed that the ATF changed for the better following the shootout and the tragic deaths of the four ATF agents on February 28th of 1993. I will chime in a bit before we get into his account of what it was like during the shootout with Branch Davidians, just to give you a little context about the investigation and how ATF got to the point where they were serving the warrant on the compound. But for the most part, I'm going to let you hear about the experience directly from Agent Boatler. So let's turn it over now to Blake Boatler to introduce himself and explain how he became an ATF agent.
2: As an 18-year-old kid, I had no idea. Um... I worked a summer as an iron worker walking steel, and I realized I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. So uh, I decided to go to college and uh, chose to go to Texas Tech University. And <coughs> what did you study? I majored in geology and ended up getting a degree in geology and uh, graduated in 84 and went out and became a petroleum geologist. So
0: what was that like?
2: <laughs> well, an interesting business. Uh, The ebbs and flow of the oil business are pretty well chronicled. Um, When it's good times, there's really nothing better, but when it's bad times, they're bad. And when I got out, they were pretty bad times. And uh, the company I was hired on to ultimately is a petroleum geologist. uh, We had like 12 geologists when I was hired. By the time I left to join ATF, we were down to six. So uh, the layoffs and things like that. It didn't lay me off because at that time I was cheap labor. I was still pretty, pretty new, so I was able to stay on for a less dollar figure. Were you being driven at the time by a kind
0: of lust for oil?
2: You know, not really. I, I didn't know much else. I mean, my, my dad had been in the oil business. Uh, it's just what I knew. I'd grown up around oil people. Uh, I'd worked summer jobs as in the oil fields, so it was just what I knew. Uh, but sometimes events in your life. Uh, point you in another direction and while I was a petroleum geologist uh, a particular event happened to me which pointed me towards law enforcement
0: so let's go to the incident that changed your course of career
2: okay is like in uh, 1985 Oklahoma City I was working for a um, oil company there and uh, I was going out to a club one evening is and as I stepped out of the car a man approached me and stuck a gun in my face and demanded my wallet uh... demanded my class ring and uh... so i ended up handing that over and then as he turned to run away you know i decided well i'm gonna gonna at least follow this guy i'm gonna find out where he's going so we got a little bit of a chase and then i was following at a safe distance and uh... spoke with the police after that and they said you'll never get that stuff back. The chances that happened, nothing. So I didn't, I did not like that answer. So I wasn't going to let that be the answer. When did you give up on the chase? Probably about 10 minutes in he ran into an apartment complex area. And I knew if I went in there, he was armed and I wasn't, outcome didn't look good for me. Um, But later that evening I went back, looked around a little bit in the next day, I went back out there to look in the dumpsters to see if he'd maybe thrown away some things out of my wallet. Uh, different story, this time I am armed. So, probably not the smartest thing to do, but at that time in my life I wasn't very smart. But I was angry and I was going to get my stuff back if I could. Um, turned out that I got a look at the guy as he was going into a store, spoke to the lady at the store. Ultimately, after three or four days, there's a lot involved, and I won't get into it all, but the the police grabbed the guy at the store and called me down there to identify him. And uh, when I did, they got a consent to search, went into his apartment, and actually I got my class ring and my wallet back. Didn't get my $40 back. that was in my wallet. But I got my class ring and my wallet back. The district attorney wrote me a really nice letter uh, about that, and it... It got me to thinking. You know, I was so excited. It was I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the adrenaline of it. I just enjoyed getting a bad guy off the streets. So I, I applied for ATF then and interviewed. And during my interview, the special agent in charge, Dick Garner, asked me. He says, "Well, what makes you think, as a geologist, you could handle somebody sticking a gun in your face?" And I said. I just so happened to have a letter, and it was a letter from that district attorney from Oklahoma City. So, sometimes things in your life happen for a reason, and we, we don't know why, but uh, I feel firm that uh, that event, though at the time, you know, tragic, uh, happened for a reason. At that time in my life, I only knew of a few agencies. I only knew of local police, state police, and the FBI. I mean. I really didn't have any experience with all the agencies that are out there, but it's an alphabet soup of agencies, as you well know. So I went to a a bookstore and got a book, and it listed all these law enforcement agencies, literally hundreds of them, and explained what they did and what they focused on, from the Secret Service to the DEA, FBI, U.S. Customs, on and on and on. Uh, And One of them that caught my eye was, at that time, ATF. And they dealt with firearms and explosives and arson and violent crime. And having been a victim of violent crime, you know, I just gravitated to them. And uh, there was a, the office in Oklahoma City. Uh, I went and started visiting those agents there. That was the same office that was ultimately uh, on April 19th, 1995, was blown up, um, you know, in that terrorist act. But uh, so, those guys, I and mean they just were down to earth, and uh, I just decided this is, this is the outfit that I want to get with. These guys really are, they're feds, but they're at the street level. They're, they're out there fighting crime, they're not out, you know, just wearing a suit walking around. They're, they're out there fighting crime, and I guess I was a down and dirty guy. So what was the training like at the academy? You know, at the time, it, you know, we went through basic agent training, and uh, then you went through new, what we call new agent training at the time. Um, to a lot of those guys that came out there that I was meeting for the first time, they'd been uh, local police officers, state police, or even other federal agencies. So they had a background in it. To me, it was all new. Uh, all the, the words, the concepts of law enforcement were totally new to me. So, uh, but you know, I enjoyed that. I, I've always enjoyed learning. Uh, I'm kind of a historian type of guy, so I I love to take in that information. So it was a challenge, but you know, I like a challenge, and so uh, you know, I, and I did well. And you know, originally I had my doubts, like I don't know if I could do this, but you know, once you get into it, get your teeth in it, you know, it worked out fine. First assignment was Dallas, Texas. I was assigned to the firearms group at that time. So when I got out of the academy, uh, I was hired in February 15th of 1987. And uh, so got out of the academy I think in July and uh, went straight to the work. I mean literally the day that I got back, there was an explosion up uh, at the Motorola plant, a fatality bombing, and uh, they had me in there working that, which was, yeah, the individual had been killed in a car by a car bomb, and the car had caught fire, and the the body had been uh, burned. But to do the case, you had to go in there. And literally, there's a sludge in the bottom of the floorboard, which not only had uh, parts of the bomb and parts of the car, but also parts of the body. But we had to take all that sludge and run it through a screen to get the smallest parts of the device, so that we can reconstruct it. So that was literally the day I was in a, I was in a suit and a tie and had come back to get sworn in and and that was the day that, uh, that was the day my career kicked off. Was that uh, crime ever resolved? Yes. Yeah, it was. I wasn't the case agent on it. Again, I was a brand new agent. Uh, That's why they had me in the floorboard of the car versus on the clipboard writing down the facts. (laughs) Had you chosen Dallas? you know when i was in oklahoma city they offered me the position in oklahoma city Uh, but um, me and my wife we'd just gotten married and my wife was uh, having a hard time getting a job there in oklahoma city i inquired if maybe we could go to dallas which is a larger market for what her profession was and uh, they said sure so dallas was close to home having grown up in fort worth so uh, uh, you know that that was as close to home as I could imagine I could get,
0: so <laughs> what about some other accomplishments in those years? I'm particularly <coughs> thinking of uh, when you started at Dallas up to the point where you go on
2: become a motorcyclist oh, motorcy- Well, I mean, you know i immediately, I had a knack for doing undercover and and at the academy, there's we have a portion of our training and and they grade you out. and I graded very high in doing undercover, so As soon as I got back, uh, probably like a lot of guys, I I started letting my hair grow and things like that and started hitting the street, working up informants and doing more and more undercover. Um, And in that world, your name gets known within the law enforcement circles, and then shortly, you're getting called to help everyone out in undercover. I worked very close with the Dallas Police Department narcotics unit. Um, They, at that time, had a rule where if the suspect had a gun, they c- weren't, were not weren't allowed to buy narcotics from him because it was too dangerous. But on the ATF side, we weren't at that time allowed to buy any narcotics unless the guy did have a gun because of the firearms involved. And that was the nexus for us to be involved. So whenever D- DPD would call me up and say, oh, we can't buy this guy's armed, then I would go and we would use uh, ATF money and I would buy the dope and or the gun from the suspect, so slowly worked more and more into the, uh, into the undercover world to where by the 1990s uh, that was pretty much all I did was undercover and except for the fact that I was also on our SRT, our special response team starting in 1991, so those two worlds that I, I went between.
1: The investigation into David Koresh and the Branch Davidians began in May of 1992 after Chief Deputy Sheriff Daniel Weyenberg with the McLennan County Sheriff's Department informed the ATF's Austin, Texas, field office of a number of suspicious UPS deliveries that were received by certain persons living in the Mount Carmel compound. These deliveries contained shipments of over $10,000 worth of firearms, inert grenade casings, and substantial quantities of explosive black powder. These deliveries had been made to a metal building nearby the compound known as Magbag, which was discovered to be a munitions dealer operated by members of the religious group. In addition to the suspicious deliveries, the group seemed to be constructing a bunker-like structure on the property and had even buried a school bus that appeared to serve as a firing range and a bunker, and they were stockpiling weapons. Throughout the investigation, it was discovered that neither Koresh nor any of his followers were licensed federal firearms dealers, nor manufacturers, nor registered in any National Firearms Act weapons. And while examining shipping invoices, investigators learned that Koresh had purchased And received several M16 machine gun car kits and several M16 machine E2 kits, which can be converted into fully automatic machine guns when combined with a lower receiver of an AR-15. That's very complicated, but it's also very illegal. It was apparent that Koresh and his followers were committing federal firearms-related offenses. So the investigation escalated to the request for a warrant, which would allow agents to search the compound for the illegal arms. But it would also arrest key characters in the case, which were the group's leader, David Koresh, and a few of his more significant followers, primarily those who some of the many shipments of firearms and explosives were addressed. ATF special agents from Dallas, Houston, and New Orleans divisions were assigned to execute the federal search warrants on the Branch Davidian compound, scheduled on February 28, 1993. Blake Boatler was one of these agents from the Dallas division, and he was part of the special response team, so he was part of the initial group of agents that was dispatched to Mount Carmel. The agents serving the warrant were deployed in a convoy, and the tactical teams who were entering the compound on foot to execute the search warrant loaded into two cattle trailers that were to be driven into the compound while helicopters piloted by the Texas State Police, the National Guard, and a medical evacuation crew surveyed this initial response team from the air. When the convoy arrived at the compound, they were immediately met with gunfire from Branch Davidians, who had been tipped off about the impending raid by a postal worker who happened to be a member of the sect. As one of ATF's tactical agents, Boatler was on one of those cattle trailers that pulled up to the compound at 9.25 a.m. on February 28, 1993. In this next portion of the oral history interview, Special Agent Boatler will describe what it's like to exit that cattle car to the Branch Davidian gunfire.
2: The bullets were flying everywhere. I can't even explain the volume of fire that was taking place. Uh, I ran down the front of the compound and turned to go into the front doors which was my team's assignment was to make entry through the front doors after they had been breached. And when I turned the corner uh, one of the Branch divisions had just dropped a hand grenade that exploded and it wounded my team leader who was in front of me. So he went to there's a fence there, and he went off to the side, and I I was shooting into a window at an individual with a rifle, and I went through the gate, and when I looked down, the front doors were closed. So I slid down to one knee, and again, probably six or eight windows just in my vicinity, you could see the muzzle blast, the blinds were being blown out, glass flying out, so you're taking fire from all these different windows. Um, One of those windows, did shoot an AK-47 probably a foot and a half in front of me across the sidewalk that sprayed my face with concrete. And uh, that's what convinced me to, to get back o- around the corner and seek some better cover, which was behind a car. When did you leave that car? Uh, well, the, the gunfight went on for, golly, an hour and 45 minutes or something. So I was behind that for an hour and 45 minutes with another agent who had been wounded in the legs. Um, so, you know, we were just in that gunfight for that time. There were some ceasefires as we were getting towards the end of the gunfight. Um, and as soon as you'd stand up, somebody would start shooting at you again, so you duck back down. So it took two or three of the ceasefires before it finally stuck. And then we were able to get up and go get our wounded and, and help everybody get off the, off the area. Literally that evening, after getting some more ammunition and things like that, Uh, many of the agents that had been out there were were deployed uh, to keep the perimeter on the compound. Uh, Some of us were released, got some rest, but the next morning we were back out there. uh, We were still in the same bloody, muddy clothes that we had on the day before. We didn't have any others. Uh, Money was pretty tight for ATF back in those days. you know, any of the helmets, any of the equipment we had, we'd gotten as uh, excess equipment from the Army. It was DRMO stuff, so as we call it. Um, So it was a tougher time, a different time for ATF. Um, You know, so we were back out there uh, for several days until ultimately enough other agents and the FBI was involved that uh, those that were involved in the initial shooting uh, were told to go on home.
1: In the aftermath of Waco and considering additional tragic events of the early to mid-1990s like the Oklahoma City bombing that fell on the shoulders of the ATF, change in the organization felt like a necessary next step. In the aftermath of Waco specifically, it was decided that the organization's best investment would be in the training of its special response team agents. Remember, Agent Boatler described the kind of equipment that the SRT received as being essentially leftovers from the Army. It was whatever they could get their hands on with the limited budget for the team within the agency to conclude we will hear agent Butler describe the changes that he observed in the wake of the tragedy at waco and then i will come back to flesh out some of the specifics of those changes that were made within the agency
2: well at that time as far as the srt goes it was we were either going to shut the srt down and, and let other agencies do our warrants or we were going to get serious and and put the funding and the training into it so that our agents and ultimately the public would be safer. Uh, and I think they made the right choice. They they went with training the agents, equipping them better. So from that day forward it, it was a real turning point for ATF. I mean the, the training that not only the SRT got but just the rank and file agents were getting Uh, extensive tactical training, uh, just going to be safer on the street. And I think it's, the streets are still just as violent. But uh, the agents, the training that they've got really shows all the events over these past several years. Our agents have really handled it well and have not, we haven't seen those deaths, uh, those tragic deaths, because I think a big part is their training that they get now and equipment. Did you personally get retraining at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, from, from the day that event happened on, once we got in gear, the training came, and it came fast and furious for us. You know, it was, uh, it was like drinking out of a fire hose. We were, we were getting so much new training, and things were coming in, and equipment uh, that we were getting spun up on. Um, and to this day, and I've only been retired a little over a year, but to this day, Uh, It's still that way. I mean, you have to keep ahead of the curve. And those guys are. They were just fast roping out of a helicopter this past week, my friends from the team. So they're they're definitely staying up on it.
1: As Agent Boatler explained, changes to training of ATF agents were almost immediately implemented. The ATF invested in tactical equipment and improved weapon systems as a result of Waco. It was realized almost immediately into the shootout at Waco that the agents in the SRT who were attempting to serve the warrant were heavily outgunned by the Branch Davidians, who were armed with over 1 million rounds of ammunition and an arsenal of modified semi-automatic rifles that had been modified to fire as automatic machine guns. So upgrades to equipment, both in terms of weapons and body armor, were of utmost importance and the training in the proper use of these automatic weapons went hand-in-hand with the upgrade in equipment. Agents also gained more comprehensive training for the use of tear gas, a less-than-lethal form of force which, when detonated incorrectly or more so in the wrong environment, could result in fatal consequences, as seen at the Branch Davidian compound at the end of that 51-day standoff. The agency also took the aftermath of Waco as an opportunity to create a more standardized training across the board, learning from curriculum taught by the Los Angeles Police Department and National Tactical Officers Association that focused heavily on hostage rescue, warrant execution, breaching, tear gas, and other capabilities the agency lacked in Waco. New standards were also set for incident commanders within the agency, both in training and on the field. Incident commanders are now subject to greater amounts of scenario-based training, where they are immersed into situations where they see and make decisions in a training environment in real time that challenge them to make the right decisions under the immense pressure of the situation. In the three decades since Waco, the field of law enforcement is still very much learning the lessons that its tragedy left behind. But one thing is for certain the ATF and other agencies certainly made a point to ensure that the four federal agents killed on February 28th of 1993 did not die in vain. Join us later this month for our final installment in our coverage of the 30th anniversary of the Waco siege, where we will dive deep into that 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidians inside the compound and the federal agents desperately trying to end the standoff peacefully.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Law & Disorder. Tune in for Part 3 on April 19th to hear the conclusion of the series of the 1993 Waco Siege. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to Precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 E Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org, and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Oh, oh,